Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, hello, and welcome to Mapping the College Audition, a podcast where we explore the landscape of the college theater world and try to demystify this daunting audition process. I'm your host, Charlie Murphy, director of MTCA, Musical Theater College Auditions. And today we have a super spongy show lined up for you. Uh, Ethan Slater of SpongeBob Broadway fame um, is uh, an actor that I don't know super well, though we overlapped this year at uh, for a little bit of time at the Performing Arts Project. Um, he is a really smart and wise young man and artist. And I think you'll get a lot from listening to him talk. Um, this is another one of our artist explorations where we kind of look at the college process and see what carried forward into the career of some successful artists today. Um, today with Ethan, we talked about his interests in many different things, whether it's wrestling and music and writing and theater. Um, we talked about what it is to learn from actors who have more experience versus learning from your peers um, and sort of how that works. Um, Ethan reminds us all to do our reading so we can avoid some panic attacks and what it is to kind of learn for yourself. Um, we talk about tools and not rules and the structure of art. Um, and then we talk about knowing what you are riffing on and how that's important if you want to try to make something new to kind of understand what the form of the thing is. Uh, let's get into the interview with Ethan. Well, it is such an honor to have Ethan Slater on the podcast. Uh, Ethan is an actor and a writer. He attended Vassar College, where he got a BA in drama, as well as minors in political science and music composition. Uh, Ethan made his Broadway debut in SpongeBob SquarePants, playing the titular role, for which he was nominated for a Tony Award and won the Drama Desk, Outer Critics Circle, Theater World, and Broadway Beacon Awards. Um, he's done a lot of regional theater and off-Broadway work. He's done some film work and web series and TV. Um, and as a writer, he has some upcoming projects, including he's done the films Interveners and Silent Mode, um, both of which he co-wrote and co-stars in, um, and also has released two EPs of original music available on Spotify, including Edge of the World, which he just wrote with Nick Blameyer, which stars Ethan, Nick, Norbert Leo Butts, and Lily Cooper. Ethan, Welcome on the show. What an honor to have you. Thank you for having me, Charlie. This is, uh, I'm so excited to be here. Oh, good, good, good. Well, let's dive a little bit into your college journey. Um, so I'd love you to kind of take me back to when you maybe first started thinking about this. Maybe you're 15, 16, 17. Um, and just tell me a little bit, as you were looking at colleges, what kind of were your goals for a theater school? What were you hoping to get out of a theater education? Yeah. You know, it's funny, though, hearing you read my bio, which is a, an incredibly uncomfortable experience. Um, <laughs> I was sort of struck by the fact that, like, you know, I'm trying to do a lot of things in a lot of different um, 
media. You know, I want, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm making music, I'm writing music and I am acting and I'm, you know, writing for the stage and I'm writing for film and TV. And I think that that's sort of what I was looking for in high school. Like that's what I wanted to do. I didn't really realize it yet. I didn't know that I had eclectic passions. You know, I just sort of like really liked doing mm-hmm. school theater and, um, you know, I really, I, I also really liked wrestling. Wrestling was really important to me. Mm. So when I was in high school, I was like running in between. I did the fall play. I did the, uh, in the winter, I was on the wrestling team. I was captain of the wrestling team and very like embarrassingly into it. And then in the spring, I would run back and forth in rehearsals for the musical, which is just to say like, I was I was not fully thinking about what I was going to do the next four years. I was just sort of existing in those high school four years and um, mm-hmm. they meant a lot to me. And like full disclosure, I don't think I would have gotten into um, almost any of the programs that my friends went to. Um, hmm. I, I really changed as a performer between the ages of 18 and 20. I think that auditioning would have been a really tough experience. And so another thing that I'm grateful for is that I gave myself the opportunity to go to a place where I could learn by doing and doing and doing and doing and doing. I ended up going to Vassar College. How, how many schools did you do? So I know you said, I don't think I would have gotten into Did you apply to a lot of schools? Did you do any BFA programs? Was it all BAs as you were looking at your, your process? I applied to one conservatory program. It was uh, a music program. Oh. I applied to Oberlin. Oberlin. I was going to guess Oberlin. I should have just guessed it. I was ready to guess that was yeah, the one it's music. Yeah, like very, very Vassar and yet yes. music conservatory. Um, I did not get in. And you applied as like a vocalist? or I, as applied, a- as a, I applied as a vocalist. And, uh-huh. and what's, a, what's a really like... In retrospect, is like sort of it's sort of funny to me in this way, but but I don't think it's you know it's it's nothing embarrassing or anything, but it's funny to me because I clearly wasn't going down that path. Like that actually was was a weird choice mm-hmm. when you look at the uh, you know at the scope of my life before and after it. It was an interesting thing where I was like, okay, well, I like this the idea of this school. I like the idea of doing this thing. Do I actually love classical vocal performance? No. Yeah. But maybe a little bit of testing. Am I good enough? Could I get in? Exactly. Right. And I also like, you know, I applied, um, I also applied like in the back of my head wanting to do some composition stuff because I had, was really into music theory at the time. So like there there was like a lot of like testing the waters Mm -hmm. for sure. And like, you know, for what it's worth at Vassar, I studied with a great uh, voice teacher and in my studio did a classical voice. So like I ended up getting that like Mm -hmm. a the actual, the right dose of that experience for me. And did you know back then, like if, if I were to categorize you or, or use your own categorization as an actor, a writer and a singer, maybe, um, mm-hmm. did you know all three of those were hyphens that were going to be put onto your artist labels back then? Um, I, yeah, I think so. I think those are things that I was hoping would be on my, on my hyphenates. Um, you know, I, cause I loved writing. I, I started writing music when I was, you know, in like fifth grade, as soon as I like started playing guitar, I started writing music. Um, so that's like always been a part of my life. I turned that into like writing poetry and then writing short stories and then, um, you know, writing one act plays. And, you know, so it was like, it just like sort of all sort of was snowballing in different ways, in ways that I was like, you know, I, I, I didn't know whether it was going to be a career. I just really loved doing it. Um, and wanted to be really good at it. I'm also like, I'm deeply competitive in a way that I think has gotten uh, a lot, a lot healthier over time. Um, 
I, I feel uh-huh. really good about how competitive I am now because now I'm competitive with myself and I like really want to uplift all the people uh-huh. around me. Like I actually feel really um, much less competitive with my peers than I used to. But when I was in high school or I was in middle school, I just didn't know where to throw that energy. Yeah. Well, it'll be yeah. perfect in the, our two trivia games today that you're going to get to use some of that competitive energy we're going to see. Um, oh, but no. I, I got to ask you, what has wrestling on the side looked like? Because as someone who I love sports myself and I've gotten a chance to do like intramural sports, but I'm like, is there such thing as like intramural wrestling? Like that feels like it would be so intense. <sighs> Well, so there's like wrestling clubs. There's like wrestling clubs. There's the Hudson Valley Wrestling Club, which I would, which I went to for a little bit. I, I unfortunately really hurt myself um, my sophomore oh. year of high school. Um, I'm sorry, uh. sorry, college. My sophomore year of college. I, uh, I was so I had been doing like Hudson Valley Wrestling Clubs. I, when I was in D.C., I would go to these wrestling clubs that I'd been going to throughout high school. I, I uh, went back to my high school and was like doing a little exhibition with a former wrestling partner of mine and uh, was trying to be flashy and be cool and ended up uh, oh. having to, you know, have a pretty major knee surgery and was on crutches for um, just oh. over six months. And what's pretty intense about it when like looking back is that I got off of crutches. Um, I was able to like put weight on my leg in uh, late April. And then the second week of May was my audition for SpongeBob. Oof. Oof. <laughs> and I was like, I said to my physical therapist, like, hey, can I, can I do this? And he was like, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to give you two answers. One is, no, you shouldn't do this. And two is, just go for it. It's <laughs> like, awesome. Thank you, physical therapist. Thank you. Um, and we'll definitely get into some of, of how you booked some SpongeBob and all that. But before we get too um, deep into that, I'd love to just hear, like, if you were to give me a couple words of what your experience at Vassar was. So what did you feel like it was like to be a Vassar student um, in terms of your experience? Well, I think like any good experience, it evolved over the four years. When I got there, I, uh, I was just doing – there was so much student theater there was a, a great department and all of that was good and there were classes and whatever. But like I was doing so much student theater that I was just like learning how to be a collaborator um, and be a theater maker. Vassar's super into theater making, um, you know, whether it's devising or whether it's, you, you know, you know, putting on something, whatever, but doing it in, in a collaborative way. So um, for me, Vassar was a lot of like, learn by doing. And then the second thing was learn by learning. Um, and that was great for me. I hmm. think I did like seven uh, shows my first year, maybe semester, um, the first year. Hmm. Um, and it was just like, a, you know, it was, it was wonderful. It was, it felt in some ways like trial by fire because in high school, it's such a different experience. It was for me, at least. It was, you know, obviously it was very student-led um, and like high school was really great in that way. But the theater I was doing at Vassar had no supervisor. It, our supervisors were, you know, college students, which was awesome. So cool. Um, okay, are you ready for our first of our, our two games where you have 60 seconds on the clock to try to answer some questions about your college experience? It is purely a, a numerically based game, just how many you can get out there. If you want to be funny and interesting, it's up to you, but we're just going to see how many answers you can answer in 60 seconds. Great. Our previous record is 12. 12 yes. answers. We don't want you to hurt your knee while you go for 12. It's not, yes. We don't try too it's hard. Kind of don't you, get yeah. injured, but we'll go for Fun it. I'm giving you the goal. Charlie? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. The hardest class in college. International politics. Snack that got you through college. Uh, Cheez-Its. Something on your dorm room wall that you remember. Um, I put pants up on the wall and it was the best art piece I've ever made. <laughs> messy roommate or clean roommate? Uh, I was, I'm messy. Class that you never used again in your life. Um, <sighs> honestly, microeconomics. Worst fashion choice in college. Um, I would wear glasses, my sunglasses, um, even after they broke. So it would only have like one uh, ear thing on it. And I thought it looked real cool. <laughs> Did you ever attend a frat party? No, no frats at Vassar. Most consecutive hours awake? Um, at, I mean, certainly over 24, so like 26. Ever possess a fake ID? Yes, shortly. <laughs> ever slept through a class? Yes, intentionally. Cheat on a test. Oh, no. Close. I didn't get to Close. That was pretty good. Get... That was a pretty good round. We're just trying to get, get people to confess felonies <laughs> yeah, whenever good. possible here. Yeah, that's the goal. Yeah, I think the statute of limitations is passed <laughs> now. You can tell me about the poli sci. Um, Megan, how'd we do? What, how many did we get there? We got 10. 10. A respectable you know 10. I'll take 10. I think that was really well done. You're telling me there'd be one sunglass that had the thing and one that didn't? Yeah, exactly. So you're so, squinting? Well, oh, oh, not the lens. I'm so, I meant the, the ear, the ear wand, the ear, what do you call it? The thing that goes over your ear? No, you definitely call it an ear wand. Yeah, the I ear definitely wand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From that wand, if not. The ear wand. Wait, so it, oh, so it just, it just hangs a little bit, like a droopy sunglass. That's exactly right. It's like a droopy sunglasses. Oh. Just bouncing on his nose. It's like the face equivalent of like wearing low cut jeans or something, like, like sagging I jeans. Think it like you projects sagging like not a care in the world. Like I, I look cool, but I'm not trying. That's what I was going for. Um, and then you incorporated pants as decor. That's like. what I'm saying. I bought these pants. I thought I thought I bought these pants. I, they didn't really fit me, so I I tacked them up on the wall. And I now is this SpongeBob related? Were they square pants? Uh, any pants can be square pants if you fold them right. <laughs> but uh, no, they weren't. They were <laughs> man. They they were checkered though. They're pretty cool. They're like gray checkered mm. dress pants. Uh-huh. So they had square p- pants with squares. Oh in yeah. Them? Absolutely. It was you kind of manifesting a vision board of what your life would be? I was you know what I need in the next year is I need an audition for SpongeBob SquarePants, the Broadway musical. (laughs) The Broadway musical for everyone. That has never existed, and yet you're putting it on the And literally nobody saw it coming. Um, (laughs) If if I were to take a little slower look back at the the college years, what do you feel like is the biggest thing that you take away? So like, what are you so grateful? Now, as a professional in all these different disciplines with these different hyphens, what do you feel like I'm so grateful I got in school? Mm. Oh, that's a that's a good question. I think the thing that I'm most grateful for is the experience that I got making something with other people who who knew the same amount that I did. Um, I think when you get into the professional world, mm. one of the great things about it, at least for me, my in my experience, getting into the professional world was amazing because everyone around me knew more than I did, had more experience than I did, and so I was learning from their experience. In college, what was an incredible thing mm-hmm. for me was that we all had similar levels of experience, and yet I, I felt like everyone was was better than me. You know, like I felt like everyone was better than me in like in different ways, in you know different <laughs> different kinds of things. But I was always learning from other people, but not just from their experience, but mm-hmm. from the way that they think. And I think that that there was something there's something that feels different about that to me. And I will say, like you know, for my senior project. My sort of, you know, my my drama thesis. My friend and I wrote a musical, and we did a, you know, a hybrid workshop production of it. So we staged ninety percent of the show, and like ten percent of it, we did at music mm-hmm. stands. Um, it was overly ambitious and incredibly fun. We were flying by the seat of our pants that were on the wall. 
And <laughs> I, I'm incredibly proud of what we made. And, you know, in a lot of ways, it was a, it was a total mess. And in a lot of ways, it's still one of the most incredible things that we, we made this, this piece. And so like having the college resources, but also having the freedom to, uh, I, I guess, learn by doing again, it's like this really, it's a really beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. That's what, that's, I think, what I take away. That's so cool. Is there anything that you feel like you wish you'd done differently? If you could go back and do school all again, is there anything you kind of wish you'd done differently in school? A million percent. Uh, I'd, I, there's so much I wish I'd done differently. Um, I wish I'd taken <laughs> more, more writing classes. I only took uh, one. I wish I had done all of my reading. Um, I did not do all my reading. I just didn't do it. I was... Uh, There's the ever cheat on a test answer we never got in the yeah, game. Yeah, I, I, I refuse to answer it, but I will continue to say that I was just like, <laughs> I, I, there was a lot of times where I phoned it in, where I coasted. I, I got pretty good grades and like I was able to mm -hmm. read 50% mm -hmm. uh, of the material, 30% of the material and act as though I'd read the whole thing. Um, mm -hmm. And that was a big mistake because mm -hmm. uh, it turns out that um, you're only cheating yourself. Because, you know, like, especially in this career, in any career, no matter what you're doing next, grades don't mm -hmm. matter as much as what you learn. Um, you are going to be a good professional mm -hmm. in whatever your career path is. You're going to be a, a better, a better, well, you know, person, whatever. If you learn things, if you allow yourself to learn things, or if you, if you work to do it, mm -hmm. I mean, obviously people have, um, you know, there's a lot of learning differences and different learning styles. Um, and so like, however you learn it, as long as you are like trying to do your best, that's going to make you better. The grade itself doesn't actually matter. So I did whatever I could to get a good grade, but not actually read the material. Anyway. <laughs> no, our high school students need to hear that answer. That's a great answer. I, I do want to like, just like little anecdote. Really soon after I graduated, um, I had like a small actual panic attack um, because I hadn't read all of these books that I'd said I'd read. And I was like, I cannot believe huh. that I wasted the opportunity to read Crime and Punishment with a professor telling me about it. Like mm -hmm. I, I listened to the professor talk about it, but I didn't understand mm -hmm. anything because I wasn't doing my reading. <laughs> and so I made a list of all of the books that uh -huh. I had pretended to read. <laughs> in college and I read them all over the course of the next year. So I, I sort uh. of like to think of myself as having a fifth year of college <laughs> that was spurred on by like this moment of like, what did I just, how did I just, what did I just do? And did that solve the panic attack? Did they go away then? The, the panic about that receded as I read more and more. Yeah. Interesting. I still have the, the high school. I think I can't believe I, I graduated. Like I like where I, I wake up and they tell me it's been 12 years later. Sorry, you actually missed a class. Like you feel like yeah. I still have that nightmare all the time. We're like, oh, my God, I'm back in high school finishing one credit or something. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's so that's I wonder what it is about that. What is the one credit that you didn't pay attention knows. to that you cheated I, on? I did all my homework in, in homeroom. They yeah. know. They, they know. know some part of me. They'll, they'll find Absolutely. out. Um, what about if you could go back and look at the program? Um, like it, maybe if there's a, a class that you feel like would be really helpful that, that is missing, maybe something that you feel like you could teach if you went back there mm -hmm. and you're like, I kind of would add this into the program. I wish this had existed. What do you feel like that would be? I definitely wish there had been a little bit more infrastructure around the development of new things. We did. There was a lot of de devising theater. There was, um, there was a little bit, there was playwriting 
and then there was acting. And I, I didn't feel like there was a strong mm-hmm. link between the development process and the performance of it. And mm-hmm. I, I've, I've talked a little bit with, with one of my dear friends and, and collaborators who's a playwright. And, you know, one of the things that we really appreciated about our, our education was sort of the freeformness of a lot of it. The theater making as a blank slate. And one of the things that I think we both mm-hmm. wished we'd had more of as theater makers and not just not just playwright or whatever was was giving that sort of that structure, that craft work backbone. Um, Nick and I have talked about this a mm-hmm. bunch, this um, Nick Blameyer, uh, with whom I wrote Edge of the World. Uh, and, and we talk a lot about um, this sort of backbone of the craft and the skill on which you're able to lay your absolutely creative ideas and and you know, structure is mm-hmm. a creative, flexible thing. Um, you know, the the Pixar mm-hmm. saying tools, not rules. Like, yes, these are like flexible ideas. But I had to learn all of that after college. It was part of my fifth year. Yes. And, you know, th- that is something that I, w- that I would love to bring. I think that's such an interesting conversation. We talk about it a lot of like um, how structure can both potentially we don't want it to be limiting but it actually can be freeing of creativity that actually no structure can sometimes be inhibiting creativity as well that if you don't have any of the tools then you've got all these ideas but they're just bouncing off each other as opposed to giving yourself at least even if it's just a scaffolding Mm -hmm. of structure in technique is something that often then allows you to be more creative and allows you to you know let that genius now actually sprout off the planted tree because it's got some some roots that's so right And, and i think that also there's this weird stage that you can really only understand by looking back. Um, so I don't expect anyone to understand it in the moment, but like when you're in certain moments, you think that you understand enough structure to mess around with it, but you actually don't quite yet because mm-hmm. your grasp of the structure is is just is just a little too rudimentary. Like you just you get the idea of structure, mm-hmm. but you don't understand um, the function of each plot point, the, the function of your technique. And it's only once you really understand the functions of them that you mm-hmm. can mess around with it. So I think that what what happened to me and what is still happening to me, I'm sure, in just different ways that I don't quite understand yet, is that like the ways that I'm messing with my uh, you know my technique or my structure aren't working, and I don't know why they're not working. But they're not working because I'm not actually fully understanding the function behind what I'm messing with. So uh-huh. like. That certainly has happened now. Uh-huh. And now I think I have a much better understanding of all of these things, but I'm sure it'll just continue to get better. I hope. Oh God, I hope. That's so interesting. Um, I'd love to talk at least a little bit about uh, SpongeBob in terms of like how it, so it happened while you were in school. Is that true? Yeah. I was a sophomore in college when I got the audition for SpongeBob. Unbelievable. So tell us a little bit about that experience and then maybe a little bit about that journey because we're going to get into the early professional life. So I'd love to kind of hear how that segued into what became your professional life. Um, So yeah, please take it away. Yeah, totally. Um, I was a sophomore in college and I wanted to spend the summer working at this theater festival in Connecticut, which is a town that my friend lived in. And I wanted to apprentice with this incredible composer. And so I applied for the apprenticeship. They had you audition for it. They liked my audition. They asked me to come audition for their main stage production of Romeo and Juliet for the role of Benvolio. So I had my first New York professional audition for Romeo and Juliet. I went into the city, which was a big benefit about 
being mm. outside of the city, but close enough to get there. I went into the city, had this audition, uh, was so freaking nervous, um, and and got the role of Benvolio. And it was a, a huge deal for me, my first professional job. And then mm -hmm. two weeks later, I get a call from um, Paul Davis at Clary Casting. Erica Jensen had cast um, this Romeo and Juliet. And he said, hey, so I got your headshot from my... Uh, what what's the word associate um <laughs> this you know from erica associate yeah, yeah, yeah. sure yeah. um and uh i've got the i'm casting this other project that uh, i can't tell you the name of it but i think you're the right shape and i'll send you the sides that we're working off of and i think you'll know what it is um and i was like okay cool uh that's the coolest thing that's ever happened to me somebody saw one audition and asked me to audition for something else awesome it's tina landau i knew it was tina landau um and i was reading viewpoints in my acting class you know like i was like you know in it so that was really wild to me um i saw that kyle jarrow was was going to be the book writer even though there was no book yet but he was already on board and mm. And I had seen a completely unauthorized children's Scientology pageant. I was like, oh, these are like people. These are like, you know. So I was like super stoked about it. Uh, you know, just to speak to the college experience of it all. When I got that email, I was like sitting on a beanbag chair in my friend's dorm room looking at a poster of all of the faces that SpongeBob makes. Um, like these, like this like grid of all of the faces that SpongeBob makes. I had um, my friend's plush doll of SpongeBob in my arm. And I opened it up and it said, like, you'll be auditioning for the role of Chipper Chip. And there's a little picture of SpongeBob. I was like, Chipper Chip? Oh, my. This is a SpongeBob show. I can't. Oh, my God. <laughs> I spent, like, hours into the night, like, up till, like, 4 a.m. out on the quad in the stairwell um, practicing my audition with my friends, my, like, my buddies from the Vassar Drama Department. Mm -hmm. You know, particularly my one, my one friend, Evan, like, truly stayed up with me till 4 a.m., on each night before my first audition and my callback. Um, I am forever indebted to him for that. So it was like a really wild experience. And I started I started working on it that summer. And us also like sort of weirdly that summer. Never doing Benvolio. Benvolio oh, went by the way. So that was right. So that was actually a really scary moment for me because I couldn't do both. And I didn't realize that I had never yeah. I had never really worked in this way before. I had only done school shows like at college where I did seven productions in a year and they overlapped and I would just run from one rehearsal to the next. Um, and so both mm -hmm. directors very reasonably were like, sorry, even though it only overlaps three days, you can't do both. Mm -hmm. And it was a hard decision for me for, for in retrospect, seems like it shouldn't have been, but it was really hard because I wanted to do Benvolio. I wanted to work with Stu, the composer. I wanted to like be doing this thing and I'd gotten mm -hmm. that job first. And then this other thing was just a two-week workshop, but with Tina Landau and playing the lead role and like all of these things. Mm -hmm. And so my, you know, I got I got pretty good advice from the chair of the drama department, who said, um, "Yeah, Shakespeare will always be there, but if you pass up an opportunity to work with Tina Landau, you'll regret it." And he was right. Yes, and you could still play Benvolio tomorrow. It still could happen. That would be. There's great. gonna be many Benvolios. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Nobody will cast me as Benvolio. I have been writing. We're not offering it to you right now. I've been writing every but... production of Romeo and Juliet, and nobody will see me. Well, this is your chance. If you're casting <laughs> yes. Anyone out there looking to cast a Benvolio? Do you still remember your audition speech? You can do a little for us if you want. <laughs> I'm trying to remember um, how it starts, but I did, I, I did a monologue from, um, um, from Lord Byron's cane. 
was my audition. Oh. Uh, uh, um, and this is life, toil. But wherefore should I toil? Because my father lost his place at Eden. in Eden? What had I done in this? I was not... Um, ugh, man, what, what is it? Wow, this is, this is now 11 years ago. 11 years ago? That's pretty good for a memory for 11 years ago. No, 10 years ago. I'll take it. It's actually a great monologue. It's like a pretty awesome little thing. And it's one of those risky things where it was like, you know, I basically picked it because nobody knew about it. And I was like, I, I, did, I hadn't read the play. I found the monologue first. This seems like a theme you're giving us, Ethan, that you're never reading 100%, your play. 100%. I, I, I have to be, okay, wait, yes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish this story and then I'm going to tell you what turned me around. Uh, so yeah, I, I like hadn't read the play and I found this monologue and I was like, this monologue is great. And I like did it in an acting class and my teacher was like, okay, so like, what's going on here? I was like, okay, so yeah. in the beginning, God created light and dark. She's not, she's like, not in the Bible. I know this is a biblical play, but like, what is actually happening? And so I read the play and it was, and you know, I, I like got it and I was like, oh, this actually is a really great monologue. And so I used it for a bunch of things. What turned me around on work ethic, I think I, I always was like sort of, you know, into um, working hard on the plays that I was working in. When I was working on theater, when I was writing, I worked really hard and I did I did a lot of research and I did my reading. I read plays and things. It was just like the academic thing that was not working for me um, in terms of, you know, intrinsic motivation. Mm-hmm. You're being told to read. Yeah, exactly. I needed to be telling myself, which is another thing that I learned in college is that people really need, like learn best and do their best work when they come to their own conclusions. So like as a collaborator, it's really important mm-hmm. not to tell your other collaborators what needs to happen, but rather for both of you to find it together. That's, that was something I learned in college. Mm. That's a great note for young directors for sure. Yeah. But, but working on SpongeBob, I was really fortunate in that um, the development process is split up and we did a summer workshop, and then the next thing we did was over my fall break, my October break, and then the next thing we did was over my winter break, mm. and then the next thing we did was over my spring break, next thing we did was over my summer break. I missed one day of classes wow. for SpongeBob. Um, I'd, l- wow. I'd like to say that they scheduled it around me. That seems like a, like a really good ego moment. I think in reality, it really just lined up perfectly. It really lined up well. Um, mm-hmm. and so I'm, I'm really grateful for that. I was able to finish school and really stay in school and, and by doing both at the same time, by going into the city to work on SpongeBob and coming back to do classes, it really sort of improved my work ethic. I still didn't read all of the books that I should have read, but I committed myself way more in my voice lessons. Like I, my junior and senior year voice classes mm-hmm. were, were the best they, like the best of my life. I, I worked so hard because I knew what it was leading to. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I was very grateful for that mm-hmm. sort of preview to know how I needed to apply myself in school. Um, not everyone gets that. And mm-hmm. I, I, I know that that was uh, quite a privilege. And this took how many total years? So how, how many years of, and legs of development was it before now actually we're on Broadway? We started in 2012. And then we were on Broadway in 2017 was when we opened. Wow. It was a, it was a, you know, five years. And then we, you know, we filmed it in 2019. It's a long process. So, so far the span of my time doing SpongeBob was, you know, seven years. Wow. It's pretty, pretty wild. It's a lot of one, one spongy character. Yeah. 
Um, and so then what was that like? So now you've graduated. You, I guess you have this job that is sort of existing and, you know, over you as a possibility, but has not yet come to fruition as a Broadway job. What was what were those years like navigating that time now where you're like, I have this kind of prestigious credit that's coming, but now I assume you are also auditioning for other things and doing other things. What was that like sort of moving to the city in those first couple of years? Yeah, I mean, I... Um... I spent a lot of time writing, a lot of time writing. I actually wrote the first song for Edge of the World in that time. And I, you know, I, I, it was a, it was a really, uh, you know, I worked at a coffee shop for the first year. Um, I did the morning shift where I would work from, you know, I would open up at, you know, 445, I would get up and mm-hmm. walk 15 minutes with my eyes closed, open up the coffee shop, work until about two. And then I would go write from two to six. Um, and then I would crash hmm. or I would go audition for things. Uh, I think the, the other thing that sort of was helpful was the same year that I did SpongeBob. I was in a musical in the Fringe Festival in New York, which I was actually also in with Lily Cooper, who was not involved with SpongeBob yet, but did go to Vassar with me. And so we were doing this, uh, this show called Independence. It was absolutely awesome. Um, but I was like starting to like hmm. get my feet wet, I guess, in New York theater. I was starting to like build relationships and little things. My junior year, I did a play with One Year Lease Theater Company. um, And I was my, you know, going, I was commuting back and forth to perform at night for them. Doing these two things at once, which is that I had this like potential Broadway thing that nobody could know about and that I was working on like sort of all the time and throwing so much energy into, but wasn't a resume builder yet. Mm-hmm. And then I was doing off and off, off Broadway theater, not in that order, off, off. And then most, and then, you know, like little by little getting, getting paychecks that paid a little bit, a higher percentage of my rent. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it was, it was a lot of that. And it, and it was absolutely awesome. And it's very similar to what I'm doing now, to be honest, which is like, I'm spending a lot of my day writing and, you know, taking, taking on sort of that side of my creative life. And I'm doing um, other show I'm doing assassins in the fall um, in New York, which I'm incredibly excited about. Hmm. So yeah, it's just it, it was it was a, another version, a slightly different version of tackling a bunch of different angles of my creative life at once. And how did you feel like as a young writer, actor, singer, multi hyphenate? Like how did you feel, especially in those early years? Were there ever times when you felt like one of those labels? was like making the other harder. We're like, are you going to see me as an actor if you know that I'm a writer? And are you going to, or were you like, this is always fueling me and, and sort of adding to my my overall artistry? Ooh, super, super good question. I think there is the feeling, to some extent, I had the feeling of, oh, people are going to think that I'm an actor who like, just like wants to write now. And I'm saying it with that voice because that's a ridiculous thing. Like if you're an actor who wants to write now, that is freaking awesome. Like do it. If you're an actor who wants to direct now, that's awesome. Do it. Like there's like doing other things and like changing your path or like growing your um, sphere (laughs) is, is great, is awesome. Um, So the fact that part of me was like, Mm -hmm. oh, people are going to think I'm like trying to like, I don't know, pivot. It's like, yeah, sure, fine. Um, mm-hmm. So th- there definitely is like a little bit of that worrying about being defined by one part of your hyphenate versus the other. Um, but I will say that I think the best part about doing multiple things, whether that's being a dancer, choreographer, actor, being, you know, like having having other things that you can tap into 
is that when I have an acting job, I'm an actor writer. When I don't have an acting job, but I have a writing job, I'm mm -hmm. a writer actor. Um, when I don't have either job, I'm a writer. <laughs> uh, and mm -hmm. that, that way, like when I'm, when I'm relatively unemployed or let's say a global pandemic hits and, um, the show that you've been working on fall, you know, has to pause and the movie that you were going to do falls through. And, you know, you had this year that you were expecting something. Well, all of a sudden I, I was still working every day from 8 30 AM until 7 PM. I was a writer. Mm -hmm. Um, I am a writer. And so that, that was actually a really liberating thing as opposed to any sort of hold back. It's, it, it allows for different mindsets. I love it. I think those hours are too difficult though. 8.30 to 7, you need to be a little gentler on yourself is what I would say. Here's, the, the other thing that That's I will say is I really, I like it. Right? I don't, it doesn't feel like a grind, I love which it. is good. Um, okay. We're going to take a super quick break. Um, and then on the back end of the break, we're going to do a little SpongeBob trivia, which I suspect Ethan is going to do very well at, given the poster you have ahead on your wall. We'll see. It actually wasn't my wall, but let's let's see what happens. Well, then maybe we'll get that person on the show, whoever's wall it was, and we'll see how they do. Stephen, trivia. We'll find out. <laughs> okay, quick break. We'll be back in a sec. Awesome. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. All right, we're back with some intense trivia time action. These are all questions pulled from the SpongeBob TV series. Some of them may be accurate. Some of them may be inaccurate. We have absolutely no idea. We take no um, credit for something being wrong. But do you feel ready to answer some questions about SpongeBob, Ethan? Oh, yes. I feel ready. Oh, you're really going to do this. I feel ready. <laughs> all right. The first question's not that hard, I think. Where does SpongeBob work? The Krusty Krab. Easy. And even Ethan's face says he's cocky, thinks he can get all five of these. Maybe he will. Question number two. Who voices SpongeBob in the TV series? The one and only Tom Kenny. These are too easy. These are too easy. What a, what a beautiful person. True or false? There really are sponges that live in the sea. True. For bonus points, what would we call a, a sponge that lives in the sea? Sea sponges. 100% correct. 100% correct. I suspect we've now made the trivia too easy. Before, people were not doing well on them. Now I feel like <laughs> Or maybe Ethan just did his, you know, it wasn't reading, but he, he watched, he viewed. That painstaking research of watching SpongeBob for hours and hours and hours. All right, question four. How many fingers does SpongeBob have on each hand? Um, four. I think he has three fingers and a thumb. 100% correct. Is that right? Three fingers and a thumb. We would have accepted four, even though I think three is technically the correct answer. A thumb is not a finger. Oh, interesting. Last question. True or false? 
On his birth certificate, it says Sponge Robert. True or false? Come on, come on, come on. Let's go. I feel like that's a later season thing. That feels like it's going to be... I want to say true. I want to say that I made up that question. So I have absolutely no idea if that's true. False. Did you? I just made it okay, up. So that's, that, we'll say true. Why not? That does feel like does. a really funny gag. One of, my favorite, um, one of my favorite SpongeBob gags is that they're sitting around a campfire and someone goes, how is there a fire underwater? And it goes out. Pretty good. Pretty good. Um, okay. I want to talk a little bit about, you know, I know you've now worked with some young students. We overlapped at, at the Performing Arts Project a little bit ourselves, um, especially with your work with, you know, this younger generation. What has been your experience in terms of like, what do you feel like they know really well, maybe more than our generation does? Where, where do you feel like they're farther along than we are? Something that I've, that I've really noticed is... <laughs> some like creative problem solving. Um, one of, just like one of my favorite um, adages is that necessity is the mother of invention. That when you're, when you're given mm-hmm. um, constraints, you come up with something really beautiful. And I've been doing a lot of teaching over the past year on, on Zoom. Um, and that's been really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that a lot of our peers um, struggled to make it work and make it art. And I didn't find young people struggling to make it art. I found that that there was this amazing sort of intuitive problem solving. Intuitive is the wrong word because that, that doesn't give enough credit, I think. Um, but like a, a willingness to problem solve and be creative and turn... Uh, turn necessity into invention. I mean, you like even see that on, on mm. social media and stuff. Like, you know, it's, it's a, it's a really amazing thing. And then on the flip side, is there something that you feel like if you could give to them that you're like, I feel like I understand this mm-hmm. as someone from my generation that I wish I could help them come into this, this bit of knowledge. What, what would you feel like you'd want to tell them or want to impart to a 16, 17 year old today? Wow. I really think that it's such a case by case basis. Um, people are so different, and um, so I don't know that that there's blanket sort of advice that I can give from from like my my generational point of view, except to say that that knowing what you're riffing on is so crucial. That if you're doing something that's like that you can reference other things, like if you want to write a rom-com, watch a lot of rom-coms. You don't have to like them. You don't have to respect them. <laughs> um, you don't have to do what they're doing. But the the best way in my experience to make something new is to veer towards or away from things that have been done. That's really cool advice. Um, a, a last question, just as we look at this crazy year where you've been writing all day for 12 hours a day and teaching on Zoom and all that, um, how do you feel like the industry is changing um, in 2021? And kind of where do you see ourselves going? As we look at maybe five, 10 years from now, how do you feel like the industry is going to have evolved, has kept some of these changes or the place where you feel like it's snapping back to what it used to be, mm. et cetera? I think that, the, the, our industry um, has a, a lot of changes that need to be made, 
changes that people are really uh, have been very aware of and working on for a long time. But this this year um, has forced a couple of things into sharp relief and has been uh, sort of an incubator for change, I, I think, I hope. Um, so mostly I hope that we come back better and different um, as opposed to snapping back mm-hmm. to what things were. And what and one example that I'll take out of um, tons that that have you know all, all of which are very important, but one example is just this idea of accessibility and theater being accessible. Um, let alone what's happening in the creation of the industry. I'm just just talking about like the accessibility of theater, and I think that we've seen with sort of pro shot um, Broadway shows that allows millions of people to see them mm-hmm. to see something that they just couldn't possibly afford to if whether it's a plane ride plus hotel plus dinner in an expensive city plus an mm-hmm. expensive theater ticket that's prohibitive and that's um that makes theater like inaccessible and elite um elitist i mean um and so i think that there is mm-hmm. uh, a really clear vision of what accessibility can mean and the fact that Hamilton on Disney plus makes people want to go see Hamilton live. The fact that, you know, I watched videos of David Byrne concerts throughout my childhood and I'm not like dissuaded from wanting to see American Mm -hmm. Utopia live. I watched it. I watched the pro shot and I've watched every one of his concerts that I could possibly get my hands on. And I want to go see it live because live is different. And I think that mm-hmm. we're we're maybe in a place to see that accessibility to theater and accessibility to these things via pro shots and whatever only enhances people's desire to want to go see it live, which means that it won't it won't cannibalize Broadway to make it more accessible. Um, mm-hmm. And then hopefully there are other initiatives that make the actual theater going more accessible too, because it's not it's not good enough to just have the the streamed version be the one that most people can see. And then if you can afford uh, a Broadway ticket, you, you get to see it live. There's got to be um, more work done there. But this does seem like a step um, in that direction. Um, I know you have a lot of exciting projects, so feel free to plug any of them. But um, certainly I'd love to hear a little bit more about this Edge of the World album that you um, just recently are releasing on August 6th. Um, so tell me a little bit about that, what you and Nick are working yeah, on. Yeah. And... Um, so, okay, so Edge of the World is a concept album that Nick and I are releasing on August 6th. Um, it's about uh, a father and son um, who moved to this remote, isolated patch of land in Alaska um, where the boy is raised sort of using his imagination to cope with his loneliness. And it's this uh, this sort of folk musical. Hmm. And I'm just like really, really thrilled about it. It's something that I've been working on slowly for a long time. It's very personal to me. Um, Nick came on as a collaborator a few years ago and and helped sort of like bring this thing together. And, and we made this album in the pandemic, which meant that we were recording it from Brooklyn, Los Angeles, uh, Harlem, Vancouver. We were all over this country um, in our closets, like with the microphone set up, mm-hmm. you know, on Zoom, making this thing happen. And honestly, we, like we created something that feels very live and in the room, and I'm incredibly proud of it. Um, there's so much to say about it, but I, I really, one thing that I will hit on just because it's, um, it is, uh, to me is really connected to my theater education is that Norbert is like one of my favorite performers of all time. He's one of the great, you know, singing actors ever. Um, 
the last five years was like something I, my senior year of high school, I was talking about like learning how to sing above the staff. I learned how to sing above the staff in order to do the last five years in high school. Hmm. He was like always just like somebody that was aspirational for me and somebody who I, I, I always wanted to meet. And I got to meet him uh, briefly uh, while doing SpongeBob. And we reached out and we were just like, hey, Norbert, there's there's nobody else in the world that we want to play this role. Um, like, would you listen to the demos? And he was like, love these demos. Let's do it. And he's awesome. He's just, he's, he's an awesome guy, but he's just awesome on the album. Um, his performance is like really, really moving and beautiful. Um, and so he's playing my father on it. Lily Cooper, uh, who people know from SpongeBob, uh, which is, you know, how she and I got really close. We also went to college together. We did that Fringe show together. We've known each other forever. Um, and she and Nick are very close too. Uh, you know, she's, she's just like absolutely, absolutely kills it on this album too. So it's just been a really great experience of like realizing a, a show that I've been working on for a long time and with Nick for a, for a while in a time where it felt like we would have to put development of the show on hold because of the pandemic. Instead, we came through and, and made something really beautiful that I'm really proud of and, uh, can't wait for people to hear. So cool. And we will definitely put, um, in the show notes links to go buy and listen to and participate in the album however you possibly can yes um we also if people wanted to hear from you today we know they can follow you on instagram and twitter at at ethan slater on instagram and then ethan a slater is that right on i mean i love that is not what it's supposed to be but that is what it says ethan's a slater it's just does it say ethan slater it's ethan s a slater because uh i made my twitter account i i don't know how long ago and my middle name is Sam. Uh, and so I didn't want to do Ethan Sam Slater. And you just wanted to leave the M out just to make it a little harder. Yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. Boring. But it kind of works. Ethan's a Slater. Ethan's a Slater. Yeah. a Slater. Yeah, I guess so. Ethan, it was such a pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you so much for the time. Thank you for having me. This was so much fun. Well, I hope you enjoyed listening to Ethan as much as I enjoyed chatting with him. Um, what a smart and wise young man and really fun too. So um, it was really fun for me and I hope you enjoyed it. Um, so I just want to do a little deeper dive on this idea of like doing your homework for yourself as opposed to somebody else. Um, I think it's something that Ethan learned really beautifully in his college years um, and that I think a lot of people learn in their college years as you sort of notice the the professors are doing less like checking up on you the way that high school teachers might do and you know did you actually read this here's a pop quiz right it tends to be less about that than it tends to be the larger what did you actually learn and how are we how are we growing with this material I'd love to encourage for those of you still in high school or early in your theater journeys to kind of learn that lesson as soon as possible especially as it relates um, to what is artistic um, I'm not saying now this is true for those of you who are still in high school. So if you're still in high school, in terms of the actual um, scholastic work, of course, your grades still matter. Your grades could be, help you get into college, all that kind of stuff. But for your artistic work, if you can make that flip where it's less about like how good my homework is and or, or am I getting the right answers, and it's more about how is this work that I'm doing actually activating myself? So, you know, that example might be like maybe in your text work for your pieces, if you're picking an objective for your song or you're, you're breaking your monologue down into beats or you're picking tactics, right? Can you do that in a way that 
that, that actually explores what is interesting to you and actually activates you, even if that language is less intelligent sounding or less right sounding, right? Um, especially for my students who are like good students in high school, a lot of them might get be the 4.0 students. I'll see a lot of like beautifully articulated essay answers of like who my character is and what my objectives are, right? but it's not actually being used in the scene. It doesn't actually mean anything to you. You're kind of doing it to impress your teacher, to impress your coach, right? In the college process, nobody's gonna be double checking your artistic homework, right? Nobody's sitting there going, okay, but how did she articulate her objective? We're going, let's see the work, right? What matters in the work? So if you can start working for yourself now, at least in this area, and as Ethan said, maybe in a larger area, that'll come in college a little bit more. Um, But if a coach tells you something that doesn't make sense, maybe ask them to clarify rather than sort of sometimes have students who kind of nod because they're trying to impress us with how much they know. That doesn't matter so much, right? If a teacher um, asks you a question you haven't considered rather than maybe giving them that like BS answer that kind of makes it sound like you know what you're talking about, maybe really ask yourself the question and explore it for yourself. It, it can be a more vulnerable way of working. And I will say this as somebody who kind of BS himself all the way through high school, you know, where I would be like, I can find a way to answer that question, even though I didn't read all the, do all the reading or do all the thing. You know, a lot of us have that skill set pretty well um, honed. It is actually, you have to kind of slow that down and almost pull that, that, that easy trick away from yourself to go, can I really explore this thing and actually um, dive a little deeper? It is going to be a very helpful way for you to work and build your artistic foundation um, as opposed to feeling like you need to reach for the answers to, to kind of live in those questions and see how they're actually activating you a little bit more. Um, you know, in the real artistic world, you are the only one accountable to your work. No director is going to go, let me see your homework, right? Whether you're the actor who's got binders full of text work or the actor who comes in with no text work done, what matters is the work that's actually happening. So what matters, the work is going on inside of you and however you do that, but nobody else is going to be from the outside going a plus for your, all your homework. Um, that said, all of you have to read the damn plays. Please read your plays that your monologues are from and know the musicals that your monologues are from, uh, your songs are from, etc. Um, well, if you enjoyed this episode and you want to hear more, please hit that follow button. I would suggest five stars if you're a fan of square pants and an ironic five stars if you're more a, a fan of square butts. You know, however you want to phrase it is, is totally fine. Um, you can also reach out to us with questions for the pod at mailbag at mappingthecollegeaudition.com. If you're interested in working with MTCA for help with your individual prep for your college edition journey, please check us out at mtcollegeaudition.com. To my young artists out there mapping their journey. Maybe put a piece of clothing on your wall to represent your big break and let us know if it works for you. We'll see you next week. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, only prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.